Good to see your faces, and you are here kind of in the late days of the season of Epiphany when we tell these great stories about the life of Christ, and we ask ourselves basically two questions. What is being revealed in this, and how should we respond? And so we actually agree in Epiphany to make some changes in our life in response to what we learn about Jesus. So just maybe keep that in mind as we um, talk today. Uh, during my first sabbatical, so this was back in 2010, Kristen and I took a trip to Ireland. Our kids were little, so we left them at home. And um, we went to Dublin and this place called St. Patrick's Cathedral, which is an old, old church. It first opened in the year 1191. And um, it's sort of the national cathedral of the Church of Ireland. And off to one side in one of the transepts, there was this display of a door. This is a, actually a picture I took of the door. And this famous story behind this door, it goes clear back to the year 1492, which you should recognize, the year Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And um, in Ireland at this time, there were these two Irish families, the Butlers of Ormond and the Fitzgeralds of Kildare. And they were involved in this bitter feud over who should have the post of Lord Deputy of Ireland, sort of like Prime Minister. And both families had put forth their own candidate for the position. And in 1492, tension broke out into outright violence over this dispute. And the two families kind of went after each other, sort of Hatfield and McCoy's, McCoy's style. And after this um, particularly deadly skirmish on the edge of town, the butlers began to realize they were going to lose this fight. And so they ran to the cathedral and took refuge in the chapter house of St. Patrick's Cathedral. And pretty soon the Fitzgeralds came and pursued them. They were at the gates and then banging on the doors. But instead of threatening their rivals, the head of the Fitzgerald clan began to say, just come out and we'll talk which never listen when anybody says, we'll just come out and talk, right? But, but he, he began to beg them. He's like, this has gotten out of hand. Um, we, we need to settle this dispute and make peace before more of our families died. But the butlers, of course, were afraid. They were in the weaker position, so they stayed put. And so this, this head of the family, Gerald Fitzgerald, yes, his name was Gerald Fitzgerald, which is totally hilarious, the eighth Earl of Kildare did something that nobody expected. Instead of ordering the door to be knocked down, he ordered his sons to cut a hole in the door to the chapter house. And so they cut the, the hole that you see here, this rectangular hole, and Gerald Fitzgerald stuck his entire arm through this hole, offering his hand in peace to the head of the other family, the butler clan. And when this guy saw this, James, his name was, the Earl of Ormond, when he saw this gesture, he realized that this Fitzgerald guy had made himself completely vulnerable in this act, risking his own arm, chancing his arm to show good faith. He believed him. They shook hands, and then they came out and settled their dispute. And so this door became famous. They preserved it to this day. It's um, often called the door of reconciliation. And it's the origin of this phrase. They use it a lot in Ireland. You hear it every once in a while here, this, this idea, I'm going to chance my arm, or you need to chance your arm comes from this story. It means to risk your well-being for the sake of peace. And I tell this story because I think that this is actually what Jesus is asking his followers to do in our text for today. After Jesus, you know, he was run out of Nazareth for preaching against their nationalism, but he kept teaching and healing 
He called a few of his disciples, the main ones there by the Sea of Galilee. And then he began to create some controversy um, because he, he wasn't just preaching and teaching and healing. He was also offering forgiveness to people. He would just say to folks, your, your sins are forgiven. This is a no-no in their times. And of course, the Pharisees and teachers of the law said, what do you think you're doing? He told that story about, you know, the, the wine skins. He said, I'm, this is new wine. It's not going to fit in your old, old bucket. It's going to mess things up. What I'm doing is new. And then he, he broke some of the Sabbath customs, picking grain, if you remember that, and eating it, healing a man on the Sabbath. And so there was controversy brewing. He, he, he ends up rounding out his disciples with 12, goes up on a mountainside alone to pray, and then we're told Jesus came down and stood on a level place. That's what it says. And a large crowd gathered and he began to teach them. Mandy started us off really well last week with the, the bit about the blessings and the woes. Remember, blessed are all the wrong people and woe to those who have it all. And, and this detail, though, that Jesus stood at, on a level place is not just a throwaway line in the Gospel of Luke. It's really a clue to how we understand the entire teaching. He is on a level place because he's leveling things. Um, think back just a few chapters early to Mary's song in chapter 1. Remember this from, from Advent and what she said about what he'll do. He'll bring down the powerful and raise up the humble. He'll scatter the proud and fill the hungry with good things. It's this leveling action that is central to Luke's gospel. And, and so Luke does this on purpose. He, he puts this sermon on a plane. In Matthew, remember, it's a sermon on the mount because he's doing a whole Moses thing. And it's Sinai symbolically and giving a new law. Here, Luke is doing a leveling thing. How to level, how to make a more just social order. How will this be accomplished? And Jesus says, but to you who are listening, to you you know, those who care, who actually want to listen and do what I say, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So this is, you know, an interesting passage for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that Jesus is making a bunch of demands, commands of his people. We often think of Jesus as like this pastor or preacher of, of grace and mercy, and he is, but here he says to those who are listening, to those who actually are care what I say and trying to follow my teaching, these are practices I want you to do. And they all fly in the face of conventional wisdom, both then and, and now. And they kind of come in four categories. I mean, we could go through all of them, but they, I kind of grouped them in four categories of practices, each with sort of sub-practices underneath. And they're all completely subversive in one way or another. They are meant to level things out. The first category is... Um, love, loving enemies. And under that heading goes um, some detail. He says kind of what he means by this. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So right off the bat, he starts with, you know, an easy one to do. This is not hard, right? 
Um, I mean, this goes against all of our instincts, against conventional wisdom. Then the next one, um, these commands are about nonviolent resistance to oppression. Um, and he gives kind of examples of this. Someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone takes your cloak, give them your tunic. Also, we'll talk about those, what they mean in a minute. The third set of commands say to give generously to those in need. Give can be translated as lend to everyone who asks for me. This is about finances. It's about money. And if someone just takes some of your stuff, it says don't demand to have it back. This is strange. And then there's the famous golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then there's some, it's funny, there's this, this in instruction that seems aimed at the fact that he knows what he just asked them to do is really strange and they're not going to want to do it. So he says, if you, if you love those who just love you, what credit is that to you? If you just do conventional wisdom, what good is that? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to get repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners. Sinners here just means people who don't buy into my teaching. They're, they expect to be repaid in full. But, and now he goes back to this list again. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And we almost, I think we're so stunned by the previous part, we almost gloss over that last line there, but it's a showstopper. God is kind, not just to the righteous, but to the ungrateful and the wicked. And so we must be kind to them as well. I mean, it's not just... Uh, do unto others as you would have them do to you. It is do unto others as God would do unto them. And then comes the fourth group of commands. It says to extend mercy, not judgment. Christ says, be merciful as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. And then it uses this metaphor from like their normal marketplace. This is what they would expect from like a good vendor, like an honest vendor. They'll receive a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the, there are these four categories of subversive practices that he, he puts in front of his people that are meant to level things out. If you can go to the next slide and show us those. Loving enemies, nonviolent resistance to oppression or evil, giving generously to those who are in need, and then offering mercy instead of judgment. And the thing that sort of sticks out to me in these commands is that there's no way these can actually work they just, I mean, it feels like here's how to be a doormat to me. How, here's how to be taken advantage of and ripped off. This sounds unrealistic, or at least idealistic. Like something maybe you strive for in a perfect world, but we don't live in a perfect world, and so stuff like this really will just make us victims. Um, th these are, you know, obviously self-defeating strategies, so maybe we need a, a workaround here. But the Jesus doesn't, he doesn't give you anything like a workaround. 
And he seems to be sort of daring his followers to believe that there must be more going on here underneath the surface than conventional wisdom tells us, that we're missing some part of reality. And he's asking them and us to sort of chance our own arms here to take a risk. Jesus dares us to live as though there's more going on in life than just what we can see. And and saying that, if we'll take a chance and engage with these practices, put our arm through the door, so to speak, and offer our hand in friendship, um, that in the way that we relate to others, even our, our enemies, and even though this seems completely unrealistic or foolish, that actually power that comes from God breaks into our world through these faithful practices, leveling things and putting the world to rights. Now, you have to remember, Jesus is teaching this to a bunch of people who are living in anything but a level society. I mean, they are living in a culture, what's, it's called patronage. Um, it's the basic structure of their society. You may have remember learning about this in, when he studied Rome in school. It's the client-patron system, this intricate system of quid pro quo. People would only give if they would get something in return. A person secured their position in society by acting in a way that put others in their debt or by gaining access to powerful elites and, and then working this lever of owing each other services. People constantly tried to enhance their position um, in society through, through these kind of endearing themselves or get obligating or getting leverage. And it was kind of one part obsequious sucking up to the powerful and one part blatant self-promotion and displays of bravado and, and ego. And even Jesus' closest followers fell prey to this. Remember John's mother coming and asking him if they can sit at his right hand. You know, they had this idea that, that linking up with Jesus would somehow bring them some status. And of course, our world is no different than this. I mean, think about how people gain political power in our world. They court the rich, so the rich will pay for their campaigns, then they use their power to take care of the rich. Many people rise to power, like um, pitting one side against the other to their advantage, you know, stoking grievances and and offering revenge, um, promises of, you know, treating your enemy in a different way than what what Jesus recommends, making people afraid, and then offering scapegoats, offering silver bullets, stirring religious fanaticism, stirring racism. That's how you come to power. Economically, socially, I mean, every bit of economic or social clout is to be leveraged for you, for your gain, for um, your worth in society, and that worth is based on what you can produce and what you can consume and how you can climb the ladder of success and, and then making sure other people know about it. This is, this is our world. And there's this, this tendency to show um, favoritism only to those who can enhance our own self-esteem in, in some way, help us get ahead financially, socially, or whatever. And there are like many, many studies 
that have kind of confirmed this phenomenon. I mean, when they when they look at what what makes you like another person, like they look at all the the factors: physical attractiveness, IQ, sense of humor, personality type, standard of living, fashion sense. They, when they study this, always the number one factor that decides whether you will like another person is if you think they like you. That's it. And if you think they like you, you like them. And if they don't, you don't. I mean, has it ever happened to you when, like, um, you, you just, there's somebody you don't click with, it, it, like work or some, someplace, you just, you just don't like them. And, and then you find out they said something really nice about you, and, and they actually really like you, and you're like, man, uh, this person has hidden depths that I was not able to, <laughs> that I just was missing before. They have, like, great judgment. Have you noticed this? Right? And the only thing that's changed is we just found out they, they like, like us. And the opposite is true as well. If you learn people don't like, like you, you're quick to dis, dismiss them. Like, you don't like me, I will not like you. That's how we do things. And this is just the way the world works. And it could be anyway. Like Mother Teresa if she is talking smack on you and be like, that Mother Teresa is a sham. I knew it. She's a big faker, right? Because this, this the calculus. It's just the way we are as human beings. But you see... God is not this way. God is not that way. God just loves people. That is God's nature. It is, um, in the Eastern Church, they say the supreme ontological predicate before God is anything else, God is love. God is this active, loving love. That's the best thing we could say about God. God loves people who love God and don't, and worship God and don't. God just constantly, as God's way of being, puts God's arm through the door. This is how God exists, offering peace and friendship to even those who don't like God at all, even enemies of God who would like to cut off the arm of God. God still loves them. But human creatures were not like this, and so we have this tendency then to organize ourselves into hierarchies to protect our position and hierarchies that punish these practices that Jesus recommends. And then the more divorced the hierarchies become from these virtues, the more concentrated wealth and power becomes at the top, the more fragile the whole thing becomes. And so they construct this an intricate system of social hierarchy to reinforce this fragile system. So everyone knows exactly where they are on the social ladder. Everybody's keeping score and watching so there's no cheating because everybody's trying to climb to the next rung on the ladder. And, and this temptation to, to build a ladder and try to climb it, it's just endemic to the human condition. All cultures, all times, all places. You read, read the prophets if you don't believe me. Just read the prophets sometime. And what Jesus is essentially saying is that everybody thinks what they're doing is trying to climb this ladder. And what they are completely oblivious to is that they've, in a sense, placed the ladder against the wrong wall. They're, it's a ladder to destruction, both, both of the person and of society as a whole. And so the question that Jesus is trying to get them to focus on is how can how can followers of this Messiah change the situation and level the field? And his answer seems to be here to instill in his followers this set of subversive practices that undermine 
the system. And for those who follow Jesus' teaching, I mean, their ladder is set against a, a completely different wall, and they're not actually climbing the ladder, they're descending down the ladder all the way toward this upside-down kingdom of God. But here's, here's the problem. Nothing about these practices comes naturally. It's not how we're taught to behave in our culture. And there's no doing this without risk. You put your arm through the door and people can cut it off. That's how it goes. You take something like loving your enemies. I mean, we don't do love our enemies. We do, if somebody likes me, I like them back. If they don't like me, I don't like them. This is what comes naturally. You take nonviolent resistance to evil. There's no enjoyment in turning the other cheek. There's huge enjoyment in revenge. I mean, if there wasn't, Quentin Tarantino would not have a job. Like, that's his whole <laughs> shtick. We love to watch people take revenge on their enemies, right? That's what comes naturally. I heard a story one time. It's one of my favorite stories about a mom who had these young children. They're playing in the other room while she's making dinner. It's like a five-year-old and a one-year-old. She hears this terrible scream. She comes in, and the five-year-old's in tears. It's like, what happened? And the five-year-old said, baby, pull my hair and it hurts. It makes me so mad. And the mom's like, look, the baby doesn't know. She's a one-year-old. Doesn't know that it hurts. She just doesn't know. A couple minutes later, there's another scream. She comes running in and, and asks her five-year-old what happened. And the five-year-old goes, now the baby knows. <laughs> right? I mean, this is deep in us. And something in you feels good when you hear that story. You're like, yeah. Yeah, you teach that baby how the world works. It's deep in us as human beings. That's what comes naturally. I mean, think about giving to those in need who can never give you something back. This just goes against the grain of how our culture works. We're rewarded by giving generously when it gives us some kind of social credibility. Right? I mean, just judge between anonymous giving and giving where you get your name on a plaque or something. Think about foundations and how they work now. They'll give tons of their family fortune. Sometimes, I mean, when you hear like the Vanderbilt Foundation, you're like, I, I read about how you got that money in school. But the, they, they don't give any money without getting their name slapped on whatever it is to enhance their reputation and shape the world and their image. Right? We give to help us climb the ladder, even if it's just socially. And yet, you know, we have so many homeless members of our church See somebody flying a sign, asking for money, the first thing you think is they'll just spend it on booze, right? I'm throwing it away. You know, we're, we're all shaped by this hierarchy of value and investment and return. This is a great example from um, the economist John Maynard Keynes. He has this great, great um, example or, or metaphor. He says, if you, if you owe the bank $100 and you can't pay, then you have a problem right? And the bank will run you out of business to get their hundred bucks. But if you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, they have a problem if you can't pay, right? And they will bend over backwards to keep you in business. They'll lend you even more and more money just to keep this shell game going because our economies are built to protect the wealthy, not the poor. That's just the way it is. The wealthy and the poor are not treated equally in our social economies and in our money economies. That's the system 
that shapes our imagination around value and money. And so that's what comes naturally. You think about judgment, not mercy. We want mercy for ourselves and judgment for everyone else. That's what we want. I mean, you think about it. We judge other people according to their actions. We judge ourselves according to our intentions. This is what we do. If I, if I didn't mean for something bad to happen because of my actions, due to my actions, but it did, I give myself a pass. I do not give this to the people around me very often. Don't shake your head, Kristen. I saw that. <laughs> I mean, this is just what we do, right? We judge ourselves to our intentions. Everybody else gets judged on their actions. That's what comes naturally. And Jesus is, is going, look, you're going to have to have this whole new way of acting in the world, new practices, and you're going to stink at it for a while. But you just keep doing it until it becomes like a habit and then a reflex and eventually becomes part of your character. Because these actions, they ripple out into the world and they can subvert this whole way of being in the world that pits us against one another. And the reason is because they open up space for God to walk into the situation. The problem is, that these require chancing one's own arm. They, re they require us to be vulnerable first, and so that's just not natural to us. We have to learn them slowly over time. But if we can work them into our lives, they open up space for God, and they actually have the power to subvert cultures, and especially ones built on, you know, revenge and violence and climbing the ladder and judgment. And they, they function the way I think about them is they function almost like the condition of possibility for God to enter in. And God will enter in and the other person may not go for it, but this is the condition of possibility. Without this, God kind of has no power in the situation. And, and God's, what God's trying to do is level the playing field and not just crush your enemies, but redeem them because God loves not just the righteous, but the unrighteous as well. Let me see if I can demonstrate um, how this works with, with a couple of his practical examples. And I have a volunteer if you want to come up. This is Heidi. Heidi went to our youth group, so I know she understands this. Okay, so the first one um, is the, the example of turning the other cheek. And, and some of you have seen this example before, but I try to do it every time the scripture comes around. So turning the other cheek, um, let's pretend you're a carpenter and you work with Jesus. And um, the boss comes over and looks at Jesus's work and is perfect because, you know, Jesus. And he looks at yours and he's like, totally sloppy work, horrible job. And he yells at you and then slaps you in the face. Okay. So as your superior, he is not allowed to punch you. That's against the law or open-handed slap you like this. It can only be the slap of insult, you silly rat, just like a Frenchman. Um, that's legal. There's actually a different word, Greek word, for assault or the, the punch. That's not what's used here. It's this slappy word. So what Jesus does not say is cower in fear or um, return fire. Pretty sure Heidi could take me. So lucky for me, right? So I've so insulted you, and then he says, turn the other cheek, which means turn that way. Now I can't 
So, yep, turn the other cheek. So I've slapped you on the other one. Now, I can't really slap like this because your nose is in the way. Um, but I also, I can't use my left hand because in the ancient world, the left hand is reserved for unclean acts, if you know what I mean. Some of you are catching on to this. You weren't even allowed to, to weren't, weren't even allowed to gesture with your left hand when you're talking. I mean, most of the time, they just kept it behind their back. So I can only hit you with the right, which means if you're turned there, I have to, I can only strike you, if I want to strike you again, as an equal. You've put me in a total bind. I have to treat you as an equal because I'm only allowed to strike or fight somebody who is on my level. That's what you're doing. All right, give it up for Heidi for helping us. Yes, yes. So, so Jesus, he's giving an example, and it's not, you know, turn the other cheek for us became that Kenny Rogers song, Coward of the County, that... And now I'm aware of, I'm the only one who knows this song, apparently. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's not meant to make us a, a doormat. A punch is only acceptable among equals. And so this is an act, a creative way to level the playing field, right? Turn the other cheek doesn't mean take a beating. It means expose the situation and rob that violent oppressor of the power to humiliate you and treat you as an inferior. But to do so creatively and nonviolently. And as you do so, you offer them the chance to wake up. This place for God to move in and a little conviction to take hold. A chance to repent and stop abusing you um, just because they can, you know. So, but either way, whatever happens from there on out, they'll have to treat you as an equal, right? You're on the same level playing field. This is the kind of action he's talking about. Let's do one more, the cloak and the tunic. Most peasants in the ancient world only had two pieces, articles of clothing. They had um, a cloak, which was a big kind of robe, coat kind of thing, um, the length of their whole body that doubled as their bedroll, that's how they stay warm at night, like half blanket, half cloak, and also as protection against the elements. And then they had a tunic, which was just like a shirt that went all the way to their ankles, just a big shirt. They didn't wear undergarments. That, that was it. They had those two things. And if you owed money as a peasant, if you owed money to someone and couldn't pay, they could force you to surrender your cloak each day. And they could hold it all day as collateral and as a way of just shaming you for owing them money and not paying and this only happened to the poor, what the, the situation he's citing. And, and you could come get it at night and, and then stay warm in the night, but you had to come back the next day and surrender it again. And so these, they had two cracks at you each day to harass you for the money. And so what Jesus is saying to, to poor people who can't pay their debts, if, if they make you do this practice, bring you in and surrender your cloak, just take off your tunic too. And so you're standing there, you know, stark naked. And in their culture, nakedness doesn't shame the naked person. It shames the person looking on the nakedness who has not clothed their neighbor because they're required to by the law. Think of the story of Noah. And so this reverses the shame situation. And it puts the lender in the position where they are obliged, they have an obligation to help that person to cover them up. And so it, it levels the, the, the playing field here, exposes kind of the the predatory nature of their finances. And it's a way to resist the injustice of this, but do it nonviolently and in a way that offers that lender a chance to repent 
and, and to do something different, to treat their neighbor with care. And, and so the, these practices, we won't go through all of them, but all of them have, have this kind of upside down, this reversal, this leveling effect. They don't fight fire with fire. They just change the calculus kind of subversively. And Jesus doesn't want us to take a beating. I mean, I always have to say, if you're in like a, a relationship where you're getting knocked around, this is not, turn the other cheek is not teaching us to stay in that, right? We're supposed to move against that, but just to try to do so without violence. He wants a strong, imaginative response. And it's, and here's the thing, it's not without risk. We always put ourselves at risk. Um, and what we end up having to do is really just allow the injustice of the situation to be displayed on our bodies like Jesus did on the cross. So the oppressor can see what they're doing is wrong and offer them a chance at redemption. Now, okay, last thing, then we're done. Our instinct when we hear, when we look at this list here is typically to try to find a loophole, a way that this doesn't work, right? So that we can get around having to follow this. Like I, I heard this podcast, um, this guy, these two guys are talking about Christian nonviolence and one of the guy was like putting the, the ultimate situation to him. Like, what if a guy comes to your house in the middle of the night with a gun, and he's got you and your wife and your kids at, at gunpoint, and he's threatening to kill you, but you have this chance in a scuffle to get the gun from him, but then he's still coming after you or coming after your kids. Wouldn't you shoot him? And the other guy was like a super Christian, and he goes, no, no, I would not. What I would do is fall to my knees and pray because I believe I tap into more power when I pray than when I pick up a gun. And I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> I'm just listening to this going, this is why people hate Christians right here. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like in that situation, am I, I'm not saying what that guy said, and I'm a pastor. Like, <laughs> I'm going to get the gun and pray for forgiveness or, you know, good aim. <laughs> but this is what we do. I'm saying that. I don't know what you do in that situation. I really don't. Um, but what we do is we pose this outlandish situation that none of us are ever going to face as a loophole so we don't have to do this in our everyday life. And we try to pick apart it, the thing with outlandish examples. It's not a real situation that 99.99 whatever of us will ever face. The real question is, can you do this with your spouse or your kids or your boss and your coworkers or the people who report to you? That's the realistic situation. That's the lever that moves the world. So don't let your mind wander to like the extreme situation. Just think about you and your life. Can you do these things? These are the subversive practices that he said can change the actual playing field, level it, and bring in this, this kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Love your enemies, whoever they are, even the ones inside you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you the ones you know. Resist evil nonviolently. If someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. Find a way nonviolently to make them see your humanity and treat you as an equal. Give generously. 
to those in need. If people ask, give it to them, even if you know I'm never seeing that thing again. If someone takes your cloak, let them take your tunic. Expose the injustice of the situation. Let it be displayed on your body, even though it's vulnerable and humiliating. Do not judge, he said. Just choose mercy over judgment. It's what you want. Choose mercy. Don't condemn. Just forgive. And when you spot the brokenness in other people, just forgive it in real time, in the moment. And then you'll be children of God. In other words, and then you'll become human as human was intended to be. You will bear this image of God to, to the world. These are the ones, these are the practices that can change everything, and I'm terrible at them. And yet, trying every day in, in little ways to do this stuff. And they require, you know, chancing your arm always in vulnerability, and sometimes you get hurt. But always you offer God a chance to come into the situation. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that um, we are part of the brokenness of the world. That, you know, just sitting here in a little church in Kansas City, we are, we are part of the wars and the violence that tears our world apart. A lot of it is done in our name. We are part of the financial system that treats people differently we're part of every injustice. And so we're so grateful that you love the unrighteous and the righteous. And we see this teaching, we hear it, and um, we just, in, in this time, in all vulnerability, offer our lives up to you, our God, and ask you to teach us how to do this just in, in the, our regular everyday life. And we pray as we step out in, in these acts of faith, God, that you give us eyes to see how you show up and change us and change the world and level the playing field. It's hard to see sometimes, so help us to see it and to, to have faith and keep faithing. Amen. Invite you to stand if you would, everyone. And we're going to receive communion now. The way that we um, do communion is we just have our ushers um, release us row by row and come forward and you'll be offered um, our little COVID safe um, juice and the little wafer on top. And um, the reason we do this is because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it passed it around to his friends, had them take from it and eat. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way after supper, he took the cup and he passed this common cup around. They all drank from it. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, a new deal between you and God in my blood. Blood meant life to them. He said, so whenever you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, remember my death, my sacrifice um, for you. In a sense, he was saying, take my 
life, my body, my blood, my life, into your life. Be made out of this stuff, the stuff I'm made out of, and then go live my image, carry it out into the world until I come for you again. And so that's why we do it. Um, he said, do this every time to just remind yourself who you are and what you're doing. And so we invite everyone who, who calls on the name of um, Christ to join us at the table. So I invite you now to pray with me, and let's pray a blessing over this. Lord, um, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside all of us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world um, feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?